This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that help make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com magazine. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash magazine. This episode is also brought to you by Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes SendPro C200 has you covered. The C200 lets you send mail and packages right from your desk. Plus, save three cents a letter and up to 39% off retail shipping rates. Start saving today and get a free 60-day trial of Pitney Bowes C200. Online at pb.com slash sciencemag. That's P as in Pitney, B as in Bose, dot com slash science mag. Terms apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 22nd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Rich Stone, former international news editor, is back with a story on a possible acoustic, as in sound, attack on the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. Is there such thing as a sound gun? And did something really happen? Rich will be here with the latest. And staff writer Gretchen Vogel joins us with a story on the bones of an extinct gibbon found in the tomb of China's first emperor's grandmother. We'll unpack all that in a little bit. First up, we have Rich Stone, former international news editor for Science. He's left us for Tangled Bake Studios, but he got in one last hurrah this week. Hi, Rich. Hi, Sarah. Okay, this is a story you've been following for quite a while, and it's about a potential or possible noise attack on the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. When did that happen? Well, the first cases cropped up in November 2016. The diplomats there in Havana 
reported symptoms uh, all the way through August of 2017. So this happened over the course of several months. What exactly have people said has happened? Like, was there an actual incident where everyone reacted or was it more a slow buildup of people saying something funny had happened? It's very complicated. So initially, three intelligence agents for the U.S. based in Havana experienced symptoms and they felt that they were under some kind of sonic attack from a long-range acoustic device. And that was the working theory, the working hypothesis of the U.S. Embassy in Havana initially, that there was some kind of sonic device which was causing these symptoms. And then more and more diplomats over the course of months reported similar symptoms. What are some of the symptoms that, they, that they've been reporting? Several kind of diffuse symptoms mm-hmm. that are hard to pin down to any one particular mechanism or cause. They include insomnia, vertigo, headaches, nausea, difficulty sleeping. There's been this broader controversy about whether the symptoms that they reported are psychogenic. So um, the worried well feeling because some of their colleagues had suffered these mysterious symptoms that perhaps they too were also under some kind of attack. Is there actually such thing as a sound weapon, a weapon that you can deploy that would hurt someone that uses sound waves? Well, certainly. Our hearing can be damaged by high decibel sound if you are near a jet engine, a tower of loudspeakers at a rock concert. Your hearing can certainly be damaged. What is unusual in this case is that the symptoms were reported after the diplomats heard or at least thought they heard unusual sounds, like a very grating sound, like grinding metal, uh, that was loud, but not at the decibel level that would automatically cause hearing loss or, or hearing damage. Are you calling this an acoustic attack, a sound attack, a potential sound attack, a potential audit? I don't know. I've been kind of messing around with the different terms for it. The State Department has called it a so-called health attack, And the scientists I talked to who are speculating that if there is a weapon, it may not be acoustic. It might be directed energy. Mm -hmm. So I've tended to lean toward describing it as a directed energy attack. There's some new findings on what's going on with these people uh, that are going to be published very soon. Can you talk about those a little bit? Michael Hoffer and his team at at a medical center at the University of Miami were evaluating the symptoms. So their findings, which are as yet unpublished, but uh, which are expecting to come out from a peer-reviewed journal in the coming weeks, will uh, reveal that um, at least a couple dozen of the diplomats have symptoms that cannot be faked. Some of these symptoms, at least, like, for example, the feelings of vertigo, dizziness, the testing which they did shows that these are are real symptoms. They're linked to changes in their inner ear. Precisely. This is very strange. Do we know anything else about, you know, what might have caused this? Is this something that's been studied, an audible noise that you can hear, but that also damages your ear at the same time? Well, this is a, a matter of fascinating debate right now, because some people feel that the sound the diplomats heard might not be related to whatever is causing their, their symptoms. There's, a, mm-hmm. there's a, a number of people who feel that this grating mechanical type sound 
is actually a type of cricket found naturally in Cuba. It's called the Jamaican field cricket that makes a very uncomfortably grating sound that matches the recordings that the diplomats made. Okay. Um, now, it's possible, and some people are pursuing this line of inquiry, that there are other types of waves, electromagnetic waves, sound waves, that could be responsible for the perception of this kind of sound. And researchers at Office of Naval Research, for example, are pursuing this idea. There were Cold War studies which showed that individuals exposed to powerful radar beam heard what appeared to be a sound. At least they perceived it to be a sound. It wasn't a sound wave, but it was something that registered in their brain as a sound. That has led the Office of Naval Research and, and other scientists to explore whether there's other directed energy devices that could create this perception of sound and might be responsible for the assumed damage that the diplomats suffered to their inner ear. It all seems pretty cloudy. I know the last time we talked about this, there wasn't as much evidence that the symptoms were real, but that the, the search for how a weapon might do this was already a foot. So it seems like they're closing in on this from two different directions. Well, there's still a contingent of people, very well-qualified scientists out there, neuroscientists and, and so forth, psychologists who are of the opinion that a lot of these cases can be explained as a psychogenic reaction mm -hmm. to a very stressful environment. There is less certainty regarding the initial cases, the intelligence agents who were initially targeted, perhaps they were targeted, but then other diplomats in that environment may have reacted to that perceived attack and developed these symptoms. The other line of thinking is that there's something real going on here. It might not be a weapon, but it might be something in the environment which is genuinely causing these symptoms, whether it's a directed energy device that was trained on the diplomats or whether it's something more natural, like a, like a virus, some other pathogen, which would cause these symptoms. Uh, there's a group of scientists who believe, based on the findings from the University of Miami and, and also a team from University of Pennsylvania, that if the symptoms are real, then there has to be a cause out there. Right. Well, let's turn to China for a second here. So now there's some similar reports coming out of that country. What do we know about that? We don't know very much. Uh, all we know is that the State Department has verified, uh, confirmed that a number, and they're not specific about the number, of diplomats at the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou in southern China were flown back to the United States for testing after reporting symptoms that were similar to those reported by the U.S. diplomats in Cuba. Wow. And this all happened within the past several weeks. So this is starting in November 2016, but, you know, between the investigations and now new reports in 2018, it doesn't seem like it's it's going to wrap up anytime soon. If anything, there's new momentum in trying to figure this out between the cases just reported from China. There have been two more diplomats in Havana that have been flown back to the U.S. for testing recently. The State Department has uh, formed an interagency task force just this month to try to pursue new, new lines of inquiry to solve this. The Office of Naval Research is stepping up their efforts to look at potential directed energy weapons, which might plausibly be behind this. 
The Cuban Academy of Sciences this month has proposed to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences to conduct a joint investigation, and they're waiting for the U.S. Academy to come back to them. So, yeah, there's a lot happening now, and uh, a lot of people are anxious. They really feel that, you know, the first attacks happened way back in November 2016. Time is slipping away. The opportunity to solve this mystery could be could be quite short now. Okay, thank you so much, Rich. You're welcome, Sarah. Rich Stone was the international news editor at Science and is now the senior science editor at Tangle Bank Studios. You can read his story at sciencemag.org slash news. Stay tuned for an interview with Gretchen Vogel about a unique set of gibbon bones found in an ancient Chinese tomb. Now we have staff writer Gretchen Vogel, and she's going to talk about the bones of an extinct gibbon found in the tomb of the grandmother of China's first emperor. Phew. Hi, Gretchen. Hi. Not an easy headline, as we were just talking about before we started recording. Shall we start with how these bones came to be found in the first place? Like what the researcher was doing when they came up with a a gibbon bone? Yeah, the researcher who found these bones or recognized their importance is named Samuel Turvey. He's a conservation biologist at the Zoological Society of London, and he studies human-caused extinctions. And he's been working in China and Eastern Asia for two decades or more. He combs historical records and museum collections for evidence about past biodiversity, so animals and plants that lived in places where they no longer live. So it could be a drawing, it could be a story, or in this case, it could be uh, some skull, a skull. Exactly. And in 2011, he was at a provincial institute of archaeology in Xi'an, China, and he came across artifacts from this tomb, which was discovered in about 2004. And among the artifacts were primate bones, which is pretty unusual in the first place, but he recognized them as gibbons or as a gibbon. It's a one skull with Mm -hmm. um, part of a jaw, and he recognized it as a gibbon. And that's particularly interesting because people had long thought that gibbons used to be in this region of China, but they haven't been for centuries. However, there are lots of pictures and art from this region, and classical Chinese poetry frequently mentions gibbons. Oh, yeah. I was going to make you read a poem. Do you want, do you have a gibbon poem for us? Yeah. One of the most famous classical Chinese poets frequently mentioned gibbons. His name is Li Bai. And one of his most famous poems is called Leaving White King City. He had been in exile and was allowed to go home. And this poem was about his journey home. White King City I left at dawn in the morning glow of the clouds. The thousand miles to Changling we sailed in a single day. On either shore the gibbons chatter sounded without pause, while my light boat skimmed past 10,000 somber crags. So the poet is traveling down the Yangtze River in central China, and there are no gibbons anywhere near this area anymore. When was, when was that poem written, do you know? He wrote in the 8th century. Mm. And when does this bone that was found in the archives, when does that date from? They think it's about 2,300 years old. It comes from the Warring States period, which was about 250 BCE. And they're not 100% sure, but they think, based on the artifacts that are in the tomb and on its, based on its location, that it well could have been built for the grandmother of Qin Shi Huang, who was the first emperor of modern China and united many parts of modern China. 
Qin Shi Huang's grave is also very famous. It's the one with the terracotta army. It has not been fully excavated, though, in part because the emperor himself, when he was alive, was fascinated with immortality. And he thought that mercury might be an elixir that would help him live forever. And apparently, he was buried together with rivers of mercury. And when they've sent down probes into this into the tomb complex, they have indeed found really high levels of mercury. And so in part because of that, they have decided not to um, further excavate the, the grave for now. Wow. Going back to the gibbon skull and jaw, we say this is a, an extinct species. How do we know that it's not related or not closely related to modern gibbons, the ones that are, we know about today? Yeah, that's a really good question. They wanted, of course, to know what kind of gibbon this was once they realized that it was a gibbon. Unfortunately, they weren't allowed to take a sample of the bone for to try and sequence any DNA from it. That would have helped match it up with the genetic information that's available from gibbons living today. But instead, they measured carefully points on the skull and on the teeth that were there, and then did a lot of mathematical comparisons to measurements taken from the types of gibbons living today. And when they compared those statistically, it turns out that the skull is so different from all of the gibbons living today that it probably belongs to its own genus. Hmm. They named this gibbon Junzi Imperialis because Junzi is a Chinese word for scholars and officials. And gibbons were traditionally associated with scholar officials because they were considered wiser and nobler than uh, mischievous monkeys for example. <laughs> okay. One thing I also wanted to touch upon, and I think you, you mentioned it briefly, was the uh, appearance of gibbons in art over the centuries. Do they look much different than the ones that um, you might see in the zoo today? Yeah, it's interesting. So the gibbons that are, that are around today also have quite distinct patterns of facial hair and colors, but they don't look like a lot of the gibbons in these paintings from several centuries ago. And people had often wondered, was that artistic license? Were people just drawing gibbons from descriptions and then they got it a bit wrong? Or gibbons that that the artists had encountered different from the ones that are alive today? And this find suggests that, in fact, they may have been realistic depictions of the gibbons that the artists saw. They just looked quite different from the ones that still survive. Gibbons that live um, now are much different from each other, from one species to the other as well. They're pretty distinct. Correct. Gibbons live their entire lives in the forest canopy and almost never, never venture to the ground or the forest floor. And so any break in the canopy, whether caused by a river or by human deforestation or anything else, can lead to isolated gibbon populations. They just they don't cross those breaks in the canopy. And so gibbons today are very genetically distinct. The four types of gibbons that are around today have different numbers of chromosomes, even. And so it's not so surprising that the gibbons in central China 2,000 years ago might have been quite distinct from the ones that are still in Southeast Asia today. Do we know anything about how they disappeared? What caused their extinction? Well, as I mentioned, gibbons are extremely dependent on intact forests. And as human populations cut down those forests for agricultural fields and other uses, the gibbons lost their habitat and went extinct. And that's a threat that's facing Today's gibbons as well, all of the gibbons that remain are endangered, some extremely so, 
There's one type of gibbon that lives on China's Hainan Island that has only about two dozen individuals remaining. It's one of the most endangered mammals out there. All right, Gretchen, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Gretchen Vogel is a staff writer for Science. You can find links to her story and the research paper on gibbons at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, including on this lovely gibbon sound, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or listen to us on the Science site, where you can also read about the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.